Welcome back to the Someone to Tell To podcast. So good to have you with us today. We're sorry that we've been on a little bit of a break the last couple of weeks, but we're happy to be back. Uh, we're especially excited to share this program with you today. Uh, we just had a delightful guest filled with so much wisdom, and his life story is, is just really powerful. It certainly is. Uh, we, had a, we had a great time talking with him. We hope that you will just be inspired by by his wisdom and and his experience of the, you know the life that he's lived the things that he's done things that he's learned uh, throughout his life because of his experiences and um yeah we we just know you'll enjoy it as we hope as much as we did so let's let's hear about who our guest is today rich Davini. he is a best-selling author a leadership and human performance expert and a retired navy seal commander during his career in the U.S. military, spanning more than 20 years, Rich has completed more than 13 deployments overseas. As the officer tasked with training others for specialized command, uh, Rich was intimately involved in an extremely specialized SEAL selection process, paring down a group of exceptional candidates to a small cadre of the most elite optimal performers. He also spearheaded the creation of a, a directorate, employing a strong emphasis on physical, mental, and emotional discipline to optimize the team's performance. Davini led his small team to create the first ever mind gym that helped special operators train their brains to perform faster, longer, and better in all environments, especially high-stress ones. Since retiring from the Navy, uh, Rich has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant at the Chapman & Company Leadership Institute and Simon Sinek, Inc. In 2020, uh, Rich founded the Attributes, Inc., where he currently serves as the corporation's CEO. Currently, Rich speaks and consults on leadership strategies, assessment and selection processes, and optimal performance techniques. He has worked with thousands of businesses, athletic organizations, and military leaders. His past clients include American Airlines, uh, Meyer Inc., the San Francisco 49ers, Pegasystems, Zoom, and Deloitte. In January 2021, Rich released his first book, which we will talk about, uh, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. Rich is a proud graduate of Purdue University, where he received a bachelor's degree in political science, government, and history. We use Buzzsprout to create this podcast, and as a small nonprofit team, we really appreciate how easy they make it to get our guests' stories out into the world. With Buzzsprout, you get a beautiful podcast website, audio players to embed into other sites, detailed analytics, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Use the link in the show notes to get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan and to support our show. As the co-founders of Someone to Tell To, we often find ourselves traveling around between meetings and listening sessions, and we often don't really have time for the little things like grocery shopping. I'm sure many of you have had that experience when at the end of a long workday, you'd rather do anything else than shop for groceries. 
That's why we're happy to give our listeners the chance to get free delivery on your first Instacart order over $35. You'll get the products you love from your local stores in as fast as one hour. There's nothing quite like sitting down at the end of the day to be present for your family over a home-cooked meal. And takeout just doesn't feel the same. So if you find yourself needing groceries and considering getting takeout instead, get hand-selected products delivered straight to your door. Get free shipping on orders over $35 by using the link in the show notes. Well, Rich, we are privileged to welcome you to the Someone to Tell To podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, so I'm, I'm honored to get invited. So this week, Michael and I had spent a lot of time just listening to some of your, your TED Talk and some of your other interviews and just learning about you. And uh, maybe just a question that we'd like to get started with today is just beyond your, your biography that, that we've shared, what would you like to just tell us about yourself? Um, you know, what brings you great joy and, and what challenges do you wish were easier? <laughs> well, those are two great questions. Uh, what brings me great joy? I mean, my family by far, it always has brought me great joy. My wife, my kids, my brothers, my sisters, I am very much a family person. Uh, and I would even say that the brothers that I served with, who I see, you know, the, the guys who I went to war with, who I see some of them once in a while, uh, most of us are now retired. So those, those, you know, I think it's people that bring us joy. That's, that's what brings us joy in life. So, um, the, uh, the the other what was the Challenge. other question I, 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 uh the answer to that is actually none i the challenge i have learned that the challenges in my life are what has made me who i am uh and had they been easier i would not have become who i am and i, I it's funny i remember you know, so you go through seal training and and if you're fortunate enough to get through and then fortunate enough to make it a career such as i did i i was i was able to go back to san diego and witness the hell week for my centennial class so that's basically 100 classes after yours i went through class 210 and so i went back 17 years later to be a part of to, to witness 310 going through their hell week and i they got to they let me help secure them from hell week and i remember um i remember standing in front of those guys on the beach and and i told them i said you know i'm standing in front of you it's it's been it had been actually 17 18 years later and i said i've i've through the last 17 years or 18 years been I've done, I've been to combat hundreds of times I've met some, I met and fought with some, some wonderful, I mean, just phenomenal human beings. Uh, I, I met my wife. I've had, I have two phenomenal kids. I have a life that I just love. Um, and none of that would have been possible had I uttered the two words that these guys had not uttered. And th those two words were, I quit. Had I quit SEAL training, had I quit Hell Week at any point, my life would be 100% different. I don't even know what it would look like. And so, so that challenge and not quitting that challenge as difficult as it was, uh, was, uh, was an architect to what I now enjoy uh, in my life. And I think we can, we can count all of our pathways that way. So, so long answer, but I, I don't, I don't regret any challenge. I think it was, everything was for purpose. We'll probably do a deeper dive into that response in just a minute. But first off, we, we should have said this even before asking the first question, just thank you so much for your service. And thank you to your family. Uh, we just can't even imagine the the level of sacrifice that was involved for you and for them. Well, I appreciate that. They, uh, they I appreciate the appreciation. And, and it's funny, uh, you know, we had so much appreciation for the military this this time around. I know it wasn't the same for the guys going to Vietnam. Um, and it was 
it was always um, welcomed. And I know it was it was great because it was bestowed on the families as well. And the families really sacrificed just as much as the service members uh, because they're they are an absence of of their their spouses and their fathers and their mothers and and all that stuff. So uh, so yeah, Team I appreciate effort. that. You uh, you said something in that in in your response to Tom's first question uh, about the fact you know two words that, that you didn't follow meaning I quit that that that's that's intriguing what what prompted you what inspired you what compelled you to not quit mm. when things were tough when things were just really hard and when when others did quit yeah and and maybe couldn't go on why why do you think you didn't? And what, what, you know, what does, what did that mean to you? Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a great one. I, so, so I actually just wrote an article recently that I titled, uh, it's okay to quit, just never give up. <laughs> and the reason is because I do believe that quitting is, is not only okay, but necessary in certain time frames. And, and the way I would define the two or separate the two would be that quitting is oftentimes a very singular pinpointed act or event. Uh, and it's, it's definitive in the moment. Um, I'm going to quit doing what I'm doing. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, quit this or quit that. And giving up is, is much more inclusive and encompassing of a, of a longer term goal. So in other words, I can quit today's workout, but that doesn't mean I'm giving up on getting fit or, or, or being healthy. Um, the, the, and I, I say this for the, I, I say this to, to give it the proper runway because, because when it comes to seal training, I think what gets forgotten by a lot of guys who do quit is that quitting is a very singular moment and to do to, to utter those words in a moment of pain um it it actually means you're giving up on your entire goal right so it's, it's one of those rare cases where where quitting and giving up are conducted and and um and achieve the same thing in this in the singular act the singular act of quitting also means you're giving up on a whole goal. That's not that's not um, necessarily the case for most of the endeavors we embark upon. In fact, I would say you know when you're when you're going down a road, when you're accomplishing a goal, you know, regardless of the difficulty, there are going to be times where you have to evaluate your position, see if what you're doing is the right thing to do, and if it's not, you quit what you're doing and you try something else in the conduct of of the overall achievement of the goal. But in the case of steel training, I think part part of what I probably understood as did the guys who made it through was that to quit was to give up, right? And to quit was, did mean that you were done, you weren't coming back. Um, and so I think that was probably either, it was ever present, it was ever present on my mind, either consciously or unconsciously. Um, and I think, I think when you, when you understand that, when you go through something like that, you begin to just say, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get through this moment. I'm gonna embrace this moment. Uh, I'm gonna get through it. And then the next moment will come and you start living moment to moment. But, but it's that, um, I think it's that idea that it's, it's not okay to quit if that act of quitting means you're giving up as well. Um, and again, not normally the case in our goals and endeavors, but certainly the case in SEAL training. Really appreciate that distinction. What what about those who did who didn't who had to quit who had to give up? What what kind of support did they receive afterwards? Because it can't imagine investing so much of yourself into achieving something and then not being able to fulfill yeah. it and the lingering effects of that. Yeah, the community's gotten much better. I, when I went through, there was no support. <laughs> Once you quit, you're out of there. Um, and I laugh. I, I laugh, but it's a it's a 
it's almost a sad laugh because what that manifested in years down the road is that were there were dudes who were going in there and when they quit after they quit they regretted it so much that there were some cases of guys committing suicide because of it um and so the the community recognized this and recognized that there had to be something done and so they began to uh implement some programs and some time frames inside of which someone quits they're still not let back in but they're monitored for a while they're they're, they're counseled they're they're talked to and they're um and it's made sure that they're okay um here's the thing a lot of the guys the majority of the guys who quit seal training maybe i shouldn't say the majority but, but certainly a, a a a good portion of the guys who quit seal training they make a decision they say you know this is not for me i this is not what i thought it would be uh this is not something i'll enjoy and i'm going to stop doing it and so and so they leave seal training although it's a it's something they they say you know what I, you know i kind of wish i could have done it but they're they're okay with the fact that 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 the seal life is not for them and i say that to people who have quit and they recognize that hey that being a seal is not for everybody it's it's just not it's not a lifestyle that's for everybody so sometimes the right decision in that person's life is to stop doing what they're doing and and we actually the guys who make it through respect that decision quite a bit because if you're someone who's not going to be the right fit for the role, we, we you're not going to be helpful for, for us. We don't want you there. So to quit is the right thing to do for them and for sure. us. There are, of course, those people who quit and they they recognize that they did it in an emotional moment. They still feel like they want to do it. And those are the guys that the community has focused on in terms of making sure that they're counseled, they're seen through, they, they, they're they they're okay before they're, they're sent off to their to their next thing. So, so the community has done a great bit of maturing and, um, and evolving in that nature, in that respect. And so now there's, there's a, there's a, a period of time after someone quits that someone is really watched carefully and counseled. You've uh, written, talked about the fact that th- there were times you were surprised by certain people who you thought for sure they had the attributes that they're going to be a great Navy SEAL, but then they weren't, yeah. you know, they didn't make it. Are they, you know, they just weren't so good. What were, what are some of the attributes that you were certain would, <laughs> would, provide success for for those guys and but but the, but didn't yeah and so i i you know it's funny it's you hindsight's 2020 so i i can look back very professorially on <laughs> seal training and say this is what i know now from my uh from my experience of having done it and run it and been a part of it when i was going through um my i had no clue who was going to make it through and who wasn't. I had some idea. I had, I had some some guesses. I was like, well, that person should make it through. And it was almost always based on their physical prowess, um, which, of course, is a mistake. And you don't re- you don't realize that's a mistake. In fact, I would say that when I got to SEAL training, I felt when I first got there, I felt actually at a disadvantage because my, my physical prowess was not what it should have been and not near what I saw other guys uh, in terms of preparation being being ready to do. What I learned quite quickly was that um, when you get in that type of training, they take you down to zero and sub-zero almost immediately. In other words, there's the physical stuff goes away immediately. Um, they 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 will make you do more push-ups than you can do, regardless of what level athlete you are. Um, and so once you're at that zero or sub-zero, the question is, what do you do then? You know, and um, and so uh, and so what you what you recognize in going through it, what you recognize in in autopsying your your performance afterwards, and of course in my case I ran SEAL training. I didn't run uh, the basic SEAL training. I ran a very specialized SEAL training for one of our commands. But you know there are similarities there. Is that uh, is that they're not in fact 
looking for those things you can see. There's looking, they're looking for those things you can't see. Um, and that, those are those attributes. That's why I really got into what those attributes, what those qualities were. And the environments that they put you in are, are specifically designed probably through a, a, a bunch of unconscious genius, but, uh, but certainly designed to, uh, to tease out those attributes, not, not, not necessarily those skills. So it's not about how fast you can run, how fast you can swim, how far you, how much you can lift, right? It's more about what you do and how you perform and those qualities in you. Can you actually keep going when everything, everything inside of you and everything outside of you is telling you to stop? <laughs> that, that's what you really need. And those, that's really why I got keyed in, dialed into these attributes. Um, the attributes required to be or to get through that training, that's always that's a that's a mystery. And I think that's a mystery that that the community is still trying to solve. I have my guesses, um, but uh, but they've always been trying to say, hey, could we pre predict the guys who are gonna make it through? And the answer is always no, <laughs> you can't. You have to put them through the experience. Yeah, we would just be curious what some of those intangibles might be. Well, one of the ones I will tell you for certain, or for certain, is is the attribute of compartmentalization, and um, and you you will not any and and a and a considerably high level of the ability to compartmentalize. In other words, and the way I define compartmentalization in the book as an attribute is the ability to uh, assess your environment, immediately prioritize what you need to what 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 you need to kind of pay attention to then pick something to focus on whatever that priority is and focus on that and block out everything else and you focus on that until completion or until the environment shifts in a way that uh, requires you to shift focus um, but the ability to kind of block out everything and focus in on something until completion and then once it's complete come out and do that again pick something else to focus on and do that until completion and just take those steps this is really the neurological uh, way that we eat the elephant one bite at a time, right? You 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 neurologically are are, are chunking your environment into manageable pieces, um, and those pieces again, the, the 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 attribute of compartmentalization, the ability to do that means that you also understand that those pieces uh, they they vary in size. In other words, as an individual, I have to choose what size piece I'm going to I'm going to take a chunk of and move towards that. A great example would be when you're freezing in the surf zone. In SEAL training, sometimes I was just counting to 10. That was my size, right? Sometimes I remember thinking, okay, I'm freezing right now, but but soon I'm gonna be doing push-ups on the beach. I'll be so hot I can't even move, right? So I said, I'll just I'll just do this until I'm doing push-ups, right? Sometimes the chunk was I'm gonna do it till the next meal, right? But but every every individual has to understand that modulation and compartmentalization as an attribute allows for a human being to do that uh to whatever degree of effectiveness. Every Navy, every person who makes it through Navy SEAL training comes they show up to the game with a high level of compartmentalization to ask you a basic question why did you want to become a, a navy seal what was it about the program what was it about that lifestyle what was it about any of it that said to you i need to do this this is meant for me yeah uh so i wanted to be a navy pilot since the time i was like six or seven years old. Uh, my twin brother and I both wanted to be pilot, Navy pilots specifically. We, my dad was a private pilot. And so he, he'd take us flying. He had his license. And so he'd take us flying once in a while on the weekends. And we loved it. We loved aviation. My, I had a cousin who ended up being a Navy pilot in the, this was the early early 80s. And so, so this, is, this was kind of born into us before Top Gun. Top Gun came out and just made this, it made it even more so because it was so cool, right? But, but we wanted to be Navy pilots. And the reason why we didn't want to be Navy pilots is we wanted to do the toughest type of jet flying. And we figured, well, land, there's nothing tougher than landing on a ship. So, so let's do that. 
right? So my brother and I were bent on that. Um, and, and so we went through our, our high school years in the late eighties, uh, bent on that. And then both of us found our way into ROTC programs, but it was really the early nineties. So it was the first Gulf war. Uh, and I remember, uh, I was still in high school and, um, I remember seeing a Newsweek article that had, a picture of a spe special operator and basically the Newsweek article was, it was titled special, special operations forces and it was a it was a kind of a, a a piece on what the spec ops forces had done during that initial gulf war so those things and it highlighted it outlined the the navy seals the force recon marine force recon uh, ranger army rangers green berets you know air force uh, ccts or P pjs and so i, I said how, how it, it kind of talked about all of these folks and the pilots too and um and it had through about eight five or about eight pages of this article probably 25 pictures um and the pictures were of the of spec operators in all different environments so underwater snow desert jungle all this stuff and what i recognized when i was reading this when i was looking at it, it fascinated me i couldn't get enough of it but that out of these 25 pictures okay about 20 of them were seals and these Navy SEALs were in all these different environments. They were underwater. They were in the snow. They were, you know, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. These guys do everything. So I, it got kind of keyed on me. So I started kind of researching them. I, I found a couple books. At the time, no one really knew what SEALs were. <laughs> we weren't uh, we weren't at all famous. Um, and so I got a couple books and I started reading up on it. And I said, you know, this is actually something I might want to try. And so when it came down to selecting, I really ultimately said to myself, well, I know I can be a Navy pilot. I know I can be a pilot. But I, I don't want to wonder if I could be a Navy SEAL. And so um, and so I, I chose that route. And I fortunately got picked up. I got selected to go to SEAL training, which is tough to do. And then when I got to SEAL training, I fortunately made it through. But that was really the impetus uh, because I wanted to see if I could do it. So in your book, uh, published in 2021, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance, you break down the real reasons why people and high-performing teams and or organizations succeed in times of stress, challenge, or uncertainty. And what are some of those reasons? Well, the reason is because they understand that attributes are really the, the most important drivers of performance. I would say I would maintain holistically, but but especially during times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty. And so, so what happens is when I what I recognize, I did all the, a lot of this research when I was running this very specialized training uh, when I was still a SEAL, and I had to basically start articulating why guys were making it and why guys weren't, and um, and the excuses we had or the the reasons we had prior to to me looking at this were things like, well, they couldn't shoot very well, couldn't skydive well, whatever. It didn't make a lot of sense because the guys we were selecting for this course for the specific command were already very experienced SEALs. So to tell a guy, hey, you didn't make it because you couldn't shoot very well, it didn't feel right. And so my my um, my chain of command said, hey, Rich, please look at this and start looking at what we're doing. And this is when I began to separate skills and attributes, which get conflated. And so just, you know, for your audience, I'll just give the give the, the reader's digest. Skills are not inherent to our nature. OK, so they're, we're not born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball. They direct our behavior in known and specific environments. So here's how and when to ride a bike or throw a ball. And then they are also very visible. So they're also very easy to assess, measure, and test. You can see how well anyone does any one of those things, you know, and you could put scores around them, stats around them. The problem with skills is skills don't tell us how we're going to show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because in stress, it's because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult to apply a known skill. This is when we lean on our attributes. Attributes, on the other hand, are inherent to our nature. All of us are born with levels of patience 
situation awareness, adaptability, resilience. Now we can certainly develop these things over time and experience, but you can see levels of this stuff in very small children, which means there's a nature nurture element to attributes. Attributes don't direct our behavior, attributes inform our behavior. They tell us how we're gonna show up in specific environments. So in other words, my son's levels of resilience and, and perseverance inform the way he showed up when he was learning how to ride a bike, learning the skill of riding a bike and falling off a dozen times doing so, right? So they inform our behavior. And then finally, because they're hidden in the background, they're very difficult to see and they're very difficult to assess, measure and test, right? So you can see them the most viscerally and visibly during times of stress, challenge and uncertainty, which makes SEAL training perfect because everything about SEAL training is stress, challenge, uncertainty, right? But but what we have to understand about these attributes is these attributes are are, are, are driving our performance at every level, but especially during stress, challenge and uncertainty. And our levels of each attribute. So I would say I, the way I would describe it is all of us have all of the attributes. So we're all born with all of them. The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each. So you take adaptability, for example, if 10 is high and one is low, right? I would be about a level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it. Okay. Someone else might be a level. Hence why you probably liked Hence why you probably liked all those photos in the book of different scenes. <laughs> totally, totally, right? So now yeah. someone else might be a level three. So the same thing happens to them and it's difficult for them to go with the flow, difficult for them to to, to roll with it, right? So so they're, they're still adaptable because every human being is, but they're just harder. They're lower, lower on that attribute. So for attribute, for to line up these attributes kind of like dimmer switches on a wall, all of our dimmer switch settings would be a little bit different. And that's going to inform our performance and stress challenge uncertainty. And so, so if we wanna understand why and how we perform as individuals or as teams in stress challenge and uncertainty, we have to understand these attributes. I'm thinking of a good friend of mine who often, he does a lot of interviewing for his work culture and um, they often will lead uh, young adults on these backpacking trips and things like that. And so when he's interviewing candidates for this position, and they're all troubled kids. Um, and he will often ask them just kind of a, like a left, a quick question, totally out of left field. Like what, what would you do if we were driving on a highway in a bus with a packed full, a, a van full of, of students and we got a flat tire, what would you do in that situation? And just to hear the kind of adaptability that they might have, because if they can't, if they can't adapt in a situation like that, they're probably not going to match their culture or what they're looking for. And so it kind of sounds similar to what you're describing. So how do you, we're talking about challenging situations, uh, moments of stress and trauma <laughs> sometimes. How do you help organizations, groups to learn how to do well, how to not collapse in, in those kinds of situations? Yeah. So, so the first thing we do with organizations is that we help them first figure out what attributes they're looking for. What, in other words, what, what are the attributes that it takes to, to thrive at that particular organization on that particular team? Um, and the reason is because that list is going to be different depending on the team. So in other words, the, the list of attributes required to be a great Navy SEAL team is going to be different than the list of attributes required to be a great accounting team or a surgical team or or sales team, right? So the first thing we do is we help them figure that list out, that master list. Um, and then what that helps us do with them is they say, okay, now we can take this list and now we know how to, we know what we can apply to each position on that team, right? So in other words, once you have that master list, you say, okay, what does the executive director need from an attribute perspective versus the 
mailroom person, right? Or whatever, right? So we help them apply that to specific roles. That informs them on how they can evaluate performance in those specific roles, but then it also helps them understand what to, in fact, hire for, right? Because a lot of times we're hiring for skills versus attributes because skills are visible. You can put skills on resumes and you can you can sit in an interview and tell someone how great you are, right? And, and it's all about these visible skills. But but these attributes, and a lot of companies and organizations incorrectly call them soft skills, right? But they're not soft skills, they're attributes, okay? But these attributes are, in fact, what is going to help you understand what drives performance. So we'll help organizations figure all that out. And then it's about, okay, now let's go in and help you start affecting and changing your hiring processes so that you can actually hire for these things. Because, because again, it's not going to be as easy as conducting an interview, you have to implement some stress challenge and uncertainty so that you can start seeing these attributes bubble to the surface. And there's there's some things you can do. It's, it's often very subjective to the company, to the organization, because again, I can't, I can't throw a bunch of accountants into the surf zone in San Diego to see how well they're going to be at accounting, right? That's going to, that's going to tell me a lot about how they're going to do in the SEAL training, right? But it's kind of fun. It might end up might be fun and end up on YouTube someday. Yeah, it, it might be slightly illegal. I mean, the, the company probably wouldn't last long, right? So, so it has to be subjective to the environment. And we help them inside of their own uh, company's uh, organization subjectivity figure out what that looks like. How do you implement some stuff so you can actually see these attributes? These attributes are always kind of hiding in the periphery. They're never really what you're looking at. A great example that I'll give you uh, is is something that happens. Well, it's a story I heard of what happened prior to me going to SEAL training. Um, and I went through in 96. Um, this was prior to me. But back then, when you showed up to SEAL training, the first thing you had to do, one of the first things you had to do was swim 50 meters. So you jump in the pool, you swim 25 to one end, 25 back to the other end. Just a basic swim test, right? Story goes that this kid shows up and it's his turn to swim. He jumps into the pool and he, when he jumps in the pool, he sinks to the bottom. And as soon as he sinks to the bottom, he starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one end and he touches the end and he walks across the bottom of the pool to the other. And he comes up, he's gasping for air, nearly drowning. And the instructor looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? And the kid who's still trying to get his breath looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor, I don't know how to swim. At that point, the instructor looks at him and pauses and then says, that's okay, we can teach you how to swim. Now, the question is, why did the instructor say that? It's because the instructor knew that if this kid had the attributes to show up to Navy SEAL training, I mean, most one of the most elite maritime units on the planet, not knowing how to swim, he had everything inside of him. He had all the qualities inside of him to make him a great Navy SEAL. Teaching him the skill of swimming was the easy part. So in other words, what the instructor was looking at visually was not necessarily what he was looking at was he was looking at what could be conceived as this guy's an idiot right what the hell is he doing but he's <laughs> now he's looking at the peripheries the peripheries are showing the attributes and so so what we'll help organizations do is take their hiring processes and say okay by doing this this or this you're just basically looking right straight up the middle so you're looking straight at skills but if you if you make this slight change or this slight change now you're starting to explore and expose these attributes and now you're actually looking at what you want to see these attributes. So it's all about those that periphery stuff. So that's the stuff we do with teams and organizations to help them figure all this out. Well, first, that is a great that's story. I awesome love that story. <laughs> and a fantastic example. And and it just, to, to, I think to us, it, it points to the fact that we've never liked the term soft skills, mm -hmm. because that guy had a skill, whatever, an attribute that 
was not soft at all. That's right. Yeah. In in that sense, it was some you know strength and an adaptability and an inventiveness. I mean, you could list all kinds of attributes there mm-hmm. that he showed mm-hmm. and exhibited in that moment and in that situation. And he probably made an incredible seal. Yeah. Yeah, he probably did. I mean, and the the the, the most primary one is courage. Courage is an attribute that I talk about. It's the first attribute I talk about. That was a, the the primary one he showed up with, right? I mean, imagine showing up and like, I don't know how to swim. And they're asking me to get in this pool, but I'm just going to see what happens. You know, that's that's a lot of courage right there. So and that's a, that's that's very impressive. <laughs> it really, it I really think is. if I remember in one of the interviews we listened to, you talked about how you had a fear of jumping out of airplanes. Is that right? I still do. Yes. <laughs> still yeah. Do. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and your level of courage? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, courage is obviously one of the one of the most important attributes for that type of work, because they're always going to ask you to do something that you otherwise wouldn't do on your own. Um, I was always I always hated heights. I still do. They make me uncomfortable. It was funny because I love flying. Everything about flying I love, but open heights are tough. Um, so I don't like roller coasters. I don't like, you know, uh, repelling or things like that. But obviously I had to. And um, and that idea of deliberately stepping into that because you because it's something you need to do in the moment is that act of courage. Like courage is literally the the idea of stepping into your fear. So the fear response bubbles up. We get the fight or flight uh, choices in our brain or neurology. When we choose to fight, i.e. step into our fear, that is the courage switch, where there's actually a specific switch in our brain that goes off. And uh, and when we're stepping into our into our fear. And so so that is courage. And I think an exercise, the ability to exercise that um, is is a fantastic ability. Every human being needs it, by the way, they don't necessarily need it to the level of an Navy SEAL. Um, but they definitely need courage. And, um, and I will say, even though I, you know, even though I say you don't need it to the level of the Navy SEAL, I, I'll, I'll, I'll walk back that comment because ultimately fear is also subjective to the human being, right? So in other words, what makes one person afraid is not going to make another person afraid, but the physiological response is the same, um, which means ultimately a Navy SEAL can be in a gunfight. I could be in a gunfight with my buddies out in, in Afghanistan and literally be experiencing less fear than the kid who's just been asked to stand in front of his or her class and give a presentation, right? Um, because what scares us is subjective. What brings up that response is subjective. So um, so that's something we always have to remember when we're, when, uh, when we might be judging someone for being afraid. Um, it, it really doesn't matter that physiological response is real for that human being. Yeah, I'm just thinking that even the guy walking in the pool, he might have been able to jump out of airplanes with no problem. He might have been. Yeah, he might have been. Um, you never know. I mean, I there's I know there's a, there's a bunch of my friends who who never liked skydiving, um, and but they were fine. Di- they were fine underwater. There were a bunch of guys who I know who didn't like being underwater, but they just did it because they had to, right? So um, so you never know that in that type of profession, there's going to be something that scares you. Um, and so you have to be uh, you have to be able to step into that and start working through it, um, obviously, because you go to combat. I mean, if, if none of that scares you, then getting shot at is probably going to scare you. Right. So or there's going to be some sort of fear response. You want some fear response. Right. You know, I always in the book, I actually say it. I name a chapter. The courage chapter is called Beware the Fearless Leader. I hate the word fearless. I really do, because fearless implies to me that someone is not risk assessing appropriately. I, you know, and, and one of my best commanding officer or one of my you know one of my favorite commanding officers years ago when I was a young uh, ensign said hey beware the fearless leader because that person's going to get you killed that person doesn't understand risk assessment and so if I see someone who has no fear I'm running the other direction because that person's going to run right into the fire with no 
risk assessment. I'm not going to follow that person. <laughs> so, um, you you stated that you love the idea, or motivated by the idea of discovery, that you, allowing others to uh, realize their potential and and watching them, witnessing them yeah. to, to go toward that, accelerate toward that. What are who in your life um, led you to that motivation? To, to, to really want to see people um, realize their potential like that. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, I actually think it was experience that, uh, that gave me a real hint into it. And I, I believe it's probably because, you know, when I went through SEAL training, uh, you know, we, we started, I think my class, if I remember, started with like 170 or so people and we graduated about 38. Right. Those are normal numbers, by the way, you know, but I remember um, wow. being at at SEAL graduation and looking around at these 38 guys who did it with me and saying, how the hell did I get here? Like, why? What makes me <laughs> able to do this? And all those other, you know, 140 odd people didn't, you know, what is it in me? And that, and so that there was a there was a there was, a, there was a, almost a healthy level of imposter syndrome instilled in me and a wonder that consistently moved through my career with me because as i did other things i selected for other uh for other units and 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 did thing and 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 made cuts that otherwise i didn't realize you know i could make i said to myself what is it what is it about this that is what is about me and these people that are allowing us to succeed and and explore this potential literally explore our potential. We're, we're doing things we never thought we could do. That kind of got me on this idea that, hey, what if everybody has the ability to do this? What if everybody has the ability to kind of explore their potential? Because ultimately, like, like where would we be, you know, or where could we be? Because already, I mean, we are the reason why we're, we've gone from cave dwellers to space explorers is because human beings have decided to explore their boundaries, to, 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 to walk to their edges and then beyond, right? That is really exploring our potential. So, so I'm really fascinated with this idea of like, you know, who's the next Einstein, you know, and, and what, what's, you know, what are, what's the, what are the contributions that are still yet out there? And it, can I, can I have a part in perhaps getting some ideas, knowledge, or resources to those human beings who may be those next Einsteins, right? Um, and those could be the kids in the inner city. Certainly some of the kids I saw in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, could could I do my part in helping and getting resources to people to help them explore their own potential, to see what, what they can contribute? I think that's cool. So knowing those statistics that you just mentioned a moment ago of only like 30 something students actually graduating. What was that like for you going in with statistics like that on your mind, knowing that? Oh, I didn't, I, I didn't, I, I, I never, never tell me the odds. It's a Han Solo thing. I never paid attention to the odds because, <laughs> because that's a, you know, I don't, I just do what I, I just did what I did. I think anybody who paid attention to the odds probably, uh, I was paying attention to the wrong thing. So, uh, so I don't, I don't do that. Thank you for listening to the someone to tell it to podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find 
at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. I know in a recent post you wrote that leveraging, leverage your pain, embrace the suck. (laughs) And that's just like really intriguing to us. And maybe you could just say a little bit more about what you mean by those words. Yeah, so I love neuroscience. Um, it's one of my, I'm really fascinated with it. I tried to, when I got out of the Navy, I really, I linked up with some neuroscientists uh, and um, and befriended them. And and, uh, and I love this idea of what our brain does and why we do it. Um, one of the, uh, one of our neurotransmitters that we all know of is called dopamine. Very powerful. It's uh, often mistaken for a pleasure or a reward chemical. It's in fact not, it's a motivation chemical. So dopamine motivates us to keep doing something. It says, this is good, keep doing this. This is why it's a root of all of all addictive behavior because it's saying, hey, do this, keep doing this, keep doing this. this is why we keep on going back. Um, and so uh, and so, what we, well, if we start to understand dopamine, like these, these the, 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 the ability to, to accomplish something or get through something, or, you know, this is why it's mistaken as a reward chemical, but, but, but when we achieve something, we get a hit of dopamine. Um, what, what, what's interesting about a neurology is that we can, in fact, help, uh, help ourselves reframe our dopamine reward system. In other words, we get dopamine hits for different things. And and one of those things you can do is you can actually start to create a dopamine reward, says keep doing this, for doing tough stuff. But you have to be cognizant of it. You have to be you have to be saying that I like this while you're doing it, right? So so in the middle of the tough stuff, you have to be saying, hey, I like this. This is good. You can actually even be lying to yourself. Neurologically they've proven you're still you're still going to give yourself some dopamine. But but one of the cool things to do is just say, okay, you can start thinking, why do I like this? You know, I give an example of freezing in the surf zone and seal training. And I remember at one point in the seal training thinking when I was freezing the surf zones, oh, this is actually pretty good for my muscles. Well, what I did there, unbeknownst to me, was I just rewarded myself. I gave myself a dopamine hit while I was in the struggle. And so and so embrace the suck is really just the and we've heard seal say it and I just wanted to kind of de- deconstruct why it was said or why it, what it meant. Embrace the suck literally means, hey, I'm going to, in the moment of toughness, I'm going to reward myself by saying, hey, this is good. Give me the reasons. Think through the reasons why this is good and give yourself some reward in the moment of toughness and challenge. If you do that consistently, your body, your dopamine reward system will wire itself to start rewarding you in tough moments, which is really actually pretty cool because then you'll start actually... You won't even have to, you, you, your body will automatically embrace the sucker versus uh, you'll have to think about it. So that's kind of what that means. It's really about rewiring your your dopamine system so that you can actually begin to get those 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 rewards. And I, I use the reward, reward, you know, but those motivations in the moments of challenge. You've also um, talked about, written about uh, the difference between a distinction between um, discipline and self-discipline. Yeah. Could you talk about a little bit about what you see those differences. Yes. So, uh, so this was a very interesting chapter for me to write on the attribute of discipline. Um, and whenever you write a book, I think um, there's a lot of self-reflection. There probably should be, but there's a lot of self-reflection that goes on. So I had to really look inside myself when I was thinking about this. And discipline, as I define it as an attribute, was the ability to kind of um, 
set and achieve long-term goals in the sense that you can kind of understand the wickets that are involved or recognized or, or needed to, to achieve a long-term goal and move through those, right? But but that movement through those kind of wickets is really do what has to be done as, as the world throws challenges at you. You're kind of disciplined in your ability to kind of just shift, reframe, quit and quit, but not give up basically. That involves a flexibility and adaptability discipline does, right? And I would define discipline as those the ability to achieve those those goals that the external world has a say in whether or not you accomplish, right? So that's the, the writing the book, the becoming a Navy SEAL, the, the being the best salesperson. The, the, the external world is going to have a say in whether or not you accomplish that. And you're going to have to navigate your way through the external world. Self-discipline, on the other hand, are those goals that you can set and achieve that the external world has no say in whether or not you accomplish. So that's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get healthy, right? So I'm going to I'm going to start eating better, and I'm worked out. Okay, I can make a decision right now to start eating better, um, and I'll be I could be in Vegas next week, and the 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 buffet is not going to throw food at me. Okay, it's all on me whether or not I continue to eat better. Okay, so self discipline is the ability to discipline one's self in those external goals that the or those those goals that the external world has no say. All this to say that those can exist. Those don't, those don't have to exist mutually, right? In other words, one can, can exist without the other. There are highly self-disciplined people, right? Who eat the right thing, work out on time. They do everything structured by the right way every day. They're in great shape, right? They can't get any of their long-term goals accomplished, okay? They're not disciplined at all. There are highly disciplined people who get like audacious goals accomplished all the time, have zero self-discipline. Like they can't manage themselves, whatever, right? Obviously, the, the, the best balance is to have a little bit of both, but I think um, it's it behooves us to know where we fall on that scale. I I am personally someone who I'm very high on the discipline scale. I can achieve audacious goals. I really can. I've done a lot of it. It's hard for me to dis to have self-discipline. Right? It's hard for me to tell myself what to do. I always joke. I hate being told what to do, even when I'm the one telling myself what to do. I, <laughs> I, I, I hate it. Right. So. Um, <laughs> So those differences are important when we start understanding our our performance. Um, if we if we think if we if we see ourselves as someone, man, you know, listen, I I do I, I'm in shape, I got everything, I, I work out, I'm I'm here. The 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 highly self disciplined person loves structure and routine. They like they actually thrive on structure and routine, which is exactly why they have trouble with overall discipline. Because when you're achieving a long term goal or objective you are guaranteed get, to get thrown off of structure and routine. I mean, the world is going to throw stuff at you that you never anticipated. And whatever path you thought you were going to take is probably not going to be 99.9% .9 of the time. It's not going to be the path you thought, right? So so the, the that's why the highly self-disciplined person often has trouble, whereas the disciplined person doesn't because they can kind of go, they can go with the flow, right? But meanwhile, the, the highly disciplined person is okay with, hey, I'm going to go with the flow. I'll do whatever it needs. I'll, I'll, I can adapt. I can flex. But when it comes to like, being you know telling oneself hey i gotta i gotta apply structure to this it's a little tougher right so so depending on where you land on those scales will start to inform your your performance and i think the the most powerful combination is to be, be able to have uh, a good amount of both right which is also possible so putting together some of these principles that you've just described over the last couple of minutes i mean what is maybe one of the hardest things that you've ever had to do? Oh, I mean, I mean, well, certainly SEAL training was was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I mean, um, the, uh, I mean, combat is tough. You know, what? I'll be honest with you. The 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 most difficult thing I've ever had to do, and I'm going to get morbid here for a second, was 
Um, I had to, when I had to inform a spouse that her husband had been killed in action. And I will tell you, um, standing outside, you know, getting, you know, standing out that outside that doorway, you know, or, you know, sitting in the car, getting ready to go knock on her door and tell her that her whole world was collapsing. I, I, you know, people don't know what dread actually means or feels like truly that was dread. That was true and utter dread. Hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. And I'm glad I didn't have to do it more than that one time, but unfortunately that's the, that's the, that's the aspect of war. So, so yeah, to, to get morbid, that's the, that's the hardest thing I've ever had to do, but physically and mentally, other than that, um, certainly seal training. Um, there's certainly some certain operations were really tough. Uh, you know, um, I think we can, you know, raising a family and, and raising kids and, and having a successful marriage, that's tough. <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not a, an easy thing to do. That's, that's work. Right. So, uh, so I think I, I, I throw a lot of that stuff into, into the category. I, I tend to think that anything really worthwhile in life is going to be hard. It's going to have some, some challenge attached to it. That's what, that's what the juice is. That's just what the spice of everything of life is, is when we actually go through these challenges and we can accomplish things and, and work hard at it. So, because if it comes easy, yeah, that's not really fun. Just really appreciate your level of openness there. Uh, we can't imagine what that must've been like to have to communicate that to a, a grieving spouse. Uh, I actually wanted to ask you this question just in general, uh, and it actually deals with emotions. I mean, we're an organization built on giving people space and permission to express their emotions, yeah. uh, whatever they may be. And I know from things we've read about just the military and SEAL training, you're in a lot of ways um, kind of taught not to express emotions yeah. openly. And could you talk maybe just a little bit about some of the ramifications of that that you've seen um, among people that you've graduated mm -hmm. with and who you've retired with? Yeah, uh, it, it, there's, there's certainly, so yeah, you're certainly not, there's a detriment to expressing emotions in an uncontrolled way. Um, and the reason why it's so important in a, in a, in a profession such as the SEALs, although I would lump like surgeons into this pressure, into that, into that category, I'd lump, I'd lump anybody who has to perform in very high stress, high intensity moments. And the reason is because our emotions come from our limbic system. Okay. Um, and our limbic system operates, you know, independent of our conscious, our frontal lobe, our conscious mind, our conscious mind, our frontal lobe. That's the, that's where we have our logic. That's where we have our language. That's where we have our decision-making, right? That's all that, all that happens in the frontal lobe, that logical thinking. Okay. When, when you're in moments of deep stress, challenge and adversity, right? When the stakes are really high, you have to be able to think logically through those moments and decide and move and make things happen, right? You have to be very, very clearly frontal lobe focused okay which means you can't let limbic shit in there <laughs> excuse my excuse my language but you can't let limbic stuff in there you have to keep your emotions at bay so you can actually make the right decisions in a in a very uh, meaningful precise way um that said that comes with downsides because if you train your whole life to suppress emotions then the question becomes okay when do you actually express emotions one, because you need to, and B, how do you understand what emotions actually feel like for you, right? I mean, there's so many people I know, I could throw myself in this category. It's like, I don't, it's like, hey, I, I, do you, are you happy? Or how do you feel? It's like, I don't know how I feel right now. I, don't, I just don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just am. I, 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 
I, I'm just what I am in the moment, you know. And so, so I think a lot of folks come out of the military, and I would say SEALs, but I would say, you know, folks, anybody who's been in the military, especially in combat, because those in the military have been to combat different than those who military who haven't, right? But um, but those who've been to combat who are forced to suppress emotions can come out and have this manifest negatively. Um, and so, uh, and so I would say, you know, it's, you know, there's the military is doing better at helping people, I think, in that, but at the same time, they have to be careful because to do the, to, to conduct the profession of arms, you have to be able to suppress emotions. So you don't, you know, you don't want to screw with that too much. Um, but I think coming out, I think the transition programs are really where the military is trying to do the most. Um, and, and there's a lot of civilian transition or programs where, where they're helping folks come out and start to understand feelings. Um, those of us, uh, you know, who are the healthiest after, after going through what we went through are the guys who I'm going to talk about my community now are the guys who have been able to actively do this. And the guys who I have coffee with and have lunch with, I'm going to, you know, I'm having lunch with a couple war buddies tomorrow. And, um, and both of these guys I was in, I was in combat with, and we're both, we, we all joke now about how much we can emotionally talk, talk about stuff. You know, we can actually talk about how we feel. I was with one of these guys who I'm going to see tomorrow. I was with a few weeks ago and we were walking out. We had just had breakfast. We walked and said, look at that. Look how beautiful that tree is. Isn't that tree beautiful? And we both started laughing because it's something we would have never said when we were active Navy SEALs, right? <laughs> just it's not time for that, right? But now we've been able to kind of activate those those um, those limbic levels, right? So. So I think it's uh, it's important that is it takes self exploration, it takes a deliberacy on the individual to say, hey, this is something I want and need to explore. Um, and, uh, and family can certainly help with that. I know I was able to stay very even and quite healthy because I had a solid family at home as well. And so, so family helps, friends help, uh, but there's a, it certainly takes some deliberacy. Hmm. There's a... Um... A wonderful quote that's been said about you, an affirmation I want to share, is from uh, the best-selling author, speaker, Simon Sinek, who said about you, so much of what I know about trust, I learned from Rich Divini. So we know that trust can be so fragile. Trust is also so important. What does trust mean to you? What does it look like to you? How do you define that? Yeah. Well, trust is everything when it comes to high performing teams. It's a foundational element. Um, I often kind of call it it's, you know, when you when you look at trust and inspiration, right? And Simon and I, Simon's a dear friend, so we've had many conversations and he of course is so prolific about talking about inspiration as well and how important that is. Um, but when you look at those two, inspiration and trust, you know, I've always kind of said, well, is it the chicken and the egg? And the way I've thought about this is that inspiration is the wind and trust is the boat. In other words, you can, you, you, you always want to be sailing on the water, you know, going at, you know, as fast as the wind will take you and the winds in your hair and everything's going great. But, but sometimes the wind dies down and sometimes you're in the doldrums and you stop moving. And, um, if you don't have trust, if you don't have that boat, you are sinking. And I would say that because sometimes the military mission was decidedly uninspirational, right? The way we got through it was we had that trust, we had that foundational boat. So it's it's really the foundational element of any high performing team, any relationship. Um, interesting about trust is trust is not just a feeling, which is a feeling defined as a human emotion. Trust is a belief, which means you know it's a human emotion that's been rationalized or justified by that human being. Um, 
And to, to, to form any belief, you have to make a decision. So that tells us something about trust, which we all know, but we have to be reminded of. And that is you cannot make anybody trust you. All you can do is behave in a way that allows someone to make a decision to trust you. Now, those behaviors, for the most part, 99.9% .9 of them are all attributes. They're things like authenticity, accountability, empathy. Um, honesty, um, integrity, those are all attributes, okay? So so the reason why I'm so big on trust, not only because I did work with on trust with with both Simon's folks and, and some other great friends from the Chapman Co. Institute, you know, but also because I love attributes. I'm kind of the attributes guy and the behaviors of trust are almost primarily from attributes. They stem from these attributes that we bring to the table. So. Uh, so that's why I think there's a there's it's it's it hammers home this idea that attributes are so important because the attributes that drive trust are what also have to be looked for. You know, what type of person is what qualities does the person bring to the table, i.e. what behaviors do they bring to the table, i.e. are they behaving in a way that allows me to make a decision to trust them. And that's what's so important. Well, this has been just such a joy, Rich. Um, <clears throat> we're just so grateful for your wisdom and your inspiration today. Um, we know our listeners will have a lot of responses to a lot of the points that you've made, and we look forward to interacting with them. Um, you know, maybe just to end our time, one of the things that we just love to do, uh, you know, is often just pose a question that maybe will cause you just to do some self-reflecting right now. And what's something that that's giving you a sense of hope in the world right now? Oh, yeah, great one. Um, I'll tell you, uh, I've been around the world and I've been to some uh, what people would consider some bad places. Um, and and all I've seen for the most part are good people, <laughs> people who just want to live their lives, do well for themselves, do well for their families, um, do well for their community. That's what most of the world is made up of, you know, and so it's easy to get seduced um, by the newsreels um, and and the bad news and think that the world is going to hell um, and think that people aren't you know aren't aren't good. Um, but people I found worldwide are inherently good. Um, now, unfortunately, sometimes they can be driven by some some bad some bad ideas, um, but they are inherently good, and and that gives me hope. It gives me hope because I think we're we as a species. Are going to be okay i you know what also gives me hope for the youth because <laughs> i think um you know the youth mm -hmm. I, I, I my two boys are teenagers now and i see their generation i see these these kids who are coming up and and for the most part they are looking at the world in a good way they're concerned about the right things they're concerned about um about caring for people they're concerned about the environment they're concerned about uh in, inclusion in a in a healthy way i know that can get all those things can, can get thrown onto either side of the, of the political spectrum. You can see extremes and we do see extremes on all of those things, you know, but, but for the most part, the, the majority, the, the, the majority of people and the majority of the youth, they're just, they're being indoctrinated to good things uh, and, a good, and, a, and a good way of looking at the world. And I, I'm really hopeful. The youth, the youth bring me hope, or they really do. They, I, I, I'm, I'm proud to, I'm proud. I will be proud to become an old dinosaur, <laughs> and be I would say and be taken care of by the by the youth. As long as I don't, you know. Again, I think as you know, someone who, you know, all of us are growing older. But as I grow older, I re I really make a conscious effort not to become a dinosaur. I make a conscious effort to keep my mind open and recognize that the world I 
grew up in is different than the world today. Um, and so I can't make effective judgments about the kids and their, their environment the same way I looked at my upbringing, um, which is really something you learn as a parent. You can't raise your kids the way you were raised. It's just impossible. It's a whole different environment. You know, there's certain, certainly some little elements you can bring forth that, that work no matter what, but uh, but you have to always consider the new environment. So. So yeah, the youth brings me hope. The the you know people bring me hope. The world brings me hope. Um, and I think we're 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 gonna be okay. That's a tremendous place to end uh, with that with that word of hope. And uh, I think you're right that that we are bombarded with so much bad stuff, bad news. Uh, you know, hearing things that that just tearing people apart, tearing them down. But to to, to also be able to see like you like you've just articulated that there is goodness that there's a vast amount of goodness uh does bring hope so thank you for sharing that for saying that and thank you for your messages about courage and about trust about people being their their, their best selves about resilience and 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 all of the attributes that um can surprise us and that make life um so much better and worth living grateful for the work that you've done, the experiences that you've had, uh, for the service you've rendered, and for all of it, and for the message that you're bringing, because it definitely resonates with us. And um, we know that will with our listeners and viewers, and we hope with so, so many more people too. So thank you, Rich, for Thanks, being Rich. with us, for having this conversation today. Well, we thank you, Mike. Thank you, Tom. Thanks much. for having me. It's been a, been a wonderful conversation, so I appreciate it.